make the hair stand up on your head, won't it? <laughs> let's all stand together and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your great plan of redemption. We thank you, Lord, in the precious and holy name of Jesus for all that has been done through his sacrifice. 
We thank you, Father, that our sins are forgiven. We've been made the righteousness of God in him. We thank you that our bodies are healed because Jesus took stripes upon his back. We thank you, Father, for restoring to us that which was lost through disobedience and sin. We thank you, Lord, for making us a part of your family and for being such a good father to us. We thank you, Father, for the presence of the Holy Spirit in us and among us today. We thank you that he gives us revelation, direction, and utterance. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 26. We want to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And we've got a, a, a number of things to cover. So we'll be reading through some scriptures and then we'll be adding to it for some other gospels. But I think we want to stick with Matthew's account as a, um, a foundation or a pattern. We'll start in verse 47 where it tells us that Jesus was betrayed. Now just several hours earlier, Jesus has shared the Passover meal with his disciples and he's identified the bread and the wine with his body and his blood. He institutes the Lord's Supper and by identifying with the elements of the Passover, he indicates that as often as we drink this cup and eat this bread, we do show the Lord's death till he comes. Following that, he went into the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. And he began to pray. And his prayer is quite remarkable. Because Jesus prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, folks, it was possible. The Bible says, with God, all things are possible. So it was possible. But Jesus is not just praying based on possibility. He said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me nevertheless. Not my will, but your will be done. Well, he wanted his disciples to pray with him. And, and the Bible says that they were asleep for sorrow. They were grieved about the things that he had told them at the Last Supper about going away and being killed. And so they were greatly grieved. And so they, instead of praying, they went to sleep. Time an angel appeared strengthening him. But then he says he went back to prayer the third time. He prayed the same prayer. And being in agony, he sweat great drops of blood. There's something going on here, folks, beyond just the physical side of the crucifixion. There had to be. So after Jesus prays, that brings us to the point where he was arrested, beginning in verse 47 of Matthew 26. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? 
Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And behold, one of them that were with Jesus, we know uh, from other accounts it was Peter, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Now, folks, Peter wasn't aiming for his ear. He was aiming for his head. We know from uh, John and uh, Luke's account that this individual was named Malchus and he was a relative of the high priest. Then said Jesus unto him, put up again thy sword into his place. Matthew doesn't tell us that he healed his ear, but the other accounts do. Jesus said to them, put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou not, or thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? Now, folks, a legion is 6,000. A Roman legion was 6,000, so when Jesus talks about the 12 legions, he's talking about 12 times 6,000. That must be enough to get the job done, wouldn't you think? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must thus be? In that same hour, said Jesus to the multitudes, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you laid no hold on me. Why didn't you do it then? But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off, under the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses against thee? But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Now, folks, I want you to realize something. Jesus is fulfilling all the terms of the law. And one of the terms of the law is not to revile nor refuse to speak when the high priest commands you. And here is a representative for the people. Caiaphas engages him in such a way that Jesus had to answer or else it would have been sin. So Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. I can just imagine Jesus enjoyed tweaking this guy a little bit. He doesn't focus on the earthly part of it so much. He said, Well, it's just like you say. But... You shall see me again. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now you have heard this blasphemy. What think ye? And they answered and said, He is guilty of death. Well, they were already on that boat before anything else ever happened. (laughs) Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ. Who is he that smote thee? Now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou wast also with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. 
Remember Jesus at the Last Supper told Peter that he would deny him three times before the cock crowed. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them that were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou art also one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. John tells us that Malchus, this same guy that, that Peter cut off his ear in the Garden of Gethsemane, was one of the ones that recognized him. And yet Peter denied again the third time. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. John's account of this says that Jesus looked on him after he denied the third time. Jesus was in such a, uh, a proximity that he turned and looked at, at Peter. And then Peter went out and wept bitterly. Well, you could understand that. How much a failure Peter must have felt that he was. Let's pick up the story in Matthew chapter 27. We'll skip over the part about Judas. And we'll pick up the story where Jesus is before Pilate. Matthew 27, 11, And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest, You say that I am. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Now at that feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will you that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? For he knew that for envy they, the religious leaders, the Jews, had delivered him. When he was sat down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have nothing to do with that man, that just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the two will you that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? And they all said unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let them be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather that a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am an innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now that little phrase, that's, that tiny phrase, when he had scourged Jesus, is expounded on in the Bible to great degree. We know that the Romans' scourging was made with something called a flagellum. And what it was, it was a whip with a handle with a number, 6, 8, 10, whatever, leather straps that came out of it. 
and embedded or tied or fixed in some way or another to those straps, those leather straps, were pieces of bone, rocks, metal pieces, anything that they could find that was, that was sharp and ha uh, harmful and, and painful. And so what they would do is they would take this thing and whip across the back of the criminal. It was certainly criminal um, punishment. And when it would hit across their back, it wasn't like the, the cowboy movies where you see somebody with a bull whip that leaves a single, a single stripe and that type of thing. But when it would hit the back of the accused, these pieces, stone, metal, bone, so forth, these pieces would stick into the skin and they would yank and rip off the skin and whatever meat it was attached to. And it would, now the Jews had a, uh, had a requirement by law that they could not whip somebody more than 39 times, but the Romans had no such law. And there were many occasions, many instances in history where those that were scourged were killed because of the, brutal, the viciousness and the brutality of the way that it was done. Now, folks, there's something that you need to know here, and that is I think a lot of people look on the stories of Jesus and the accounts that the Bible gives us of Jesus, and they treat them kind of like fairy tales. But have you ever heard of the names Alexander the Great? How about Aristotle? How about Socrates? Well, those three guys were 400 or 350 to 400 years before Jesus. And we have way, way more historical evidence of Jesus than we do any of those others. Now, nobody questions whether Alexander the Great lived. Nobody questions the, the life of Socrates or Aristotle. And the reality is the historical evidence of Jesus here on the earth operating as the Bible says that he did, is abundant. He was born in Roman times, and we have more historical evidence and information about what happened in the Roman Empire than just about any other period of history. And it is without dispute that in Pilate's day, historical records show that a man named Jesus was put to death and laid in a tomb. You cannot doubt that from history. There's too much proof. There's too much evidence to, to sustain it. To identify it. The only thing that's in doubt is how he got out of the tomb. That's the only question that history doesn't provide us the answers to. But there is enough documented historical evidence. About the controversies concerning Jesus and Pilate specifically. That proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that these are real things that took place. Jesus was scourged by the Romans. The Bible says, the Old Testament Hebrew says in Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. But we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. That word stripes refers to the scourging. And the word is really not stripes. 
we think of, or at least I do, the only time I've ever uh, witnessed anything about somebody being beaten was on some of these old westerns. And it shows somebody being beaten with a bullwhip, and after they're finished, you can see five or six or seven lines or whatever it is that are bloody. But the word that's used for Jesus is not stripes, it's bruised. Not bruises, bruised. Now, the language tells us this. If there were stripes, as we would consider, or as we've seen on TV shows, there's a Hebrew word for that. Not the one that's used. If it was bruises, there's a Hebrew word for that, not the one that's used. The fact that the word bruise is used from the Hebrew language means that there could not have been on Jesus' back one quarter of an inch between one mark and another. If there was just one quarter of an inch of, the, of his flesh left on his back, after this scourging, then the Hebrew language would have dictated and necessitated a different word than what was used. When it says Pilate had Jesus scourged, it means he had the flesh torn off of his back. He paid an awful price. He suffered a severe punishment. And the Bible says, by that bruise we are healed. Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. You know how many of these are? This word band, when it refers to the soldiers, is a military term. There's another corresponding term to it, and it means cohort of soldiers. A band or a cohort of soldiers was a tenth of a legion, and a legion was 6,000 people. So here where it says, the whole band of soldiers took Jesus. There's 600 of them. Now what I want you to get from this, folks, and understand is that Pilate is doing everything he can to keep there from being civil unrest at this time of the Passover. For the Passover, people have come to Jerusalem from all quarters of the earth. And so the, Jerusalem, the town itself, becomes a powder keg. And the whole reason Pilate acquiesced and agreed to the things that the high priest determined they wanted to do with Jesus was so that he could avoid civil unrest. He was afraid that if he didn't let the Jews, the chief priests, have their way, that the city could explode in riots. And then that wouldn't look good for him. He would lose his position as governor over the area. He'd be replaced with somebody else. So this is all a political move on Pilate's part. He doesn't like it. He knows it's bogus. But he goes along with it to keep the peace. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took off the robe from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simeon, or Simon by name, and they compelled him to bear his cross. Now the reason for that was because he had no strength left from the scourging. 
they had beaten him so severely that he couldn't carry the cross beam of the, of the cross that he would be crucified on. So they had this Simon do it. And when they were coming to a place of Golgotha, that is to say a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. This was, this gall, uh, vinegar mixed with gall, was a pain-numbing thing. And they would offer it to the people on the cross because the whole purpose of the cross was torture. And so if somebody came to the place where they could be numb to some of the pain, they could last longer on the cross before death overtook them. And death on the cross really became a matter of suffocation because the way that they were positioned, their feet would have to push up their body to get enough air to fill their lungs. After a period of time, they lost the ability to push up to get more air. And so they suffocated. Well, the Romans liked to prolong the show as long as they could. And so that's what this vinegar mixed with gall was about. But Jesus wouldn't take anything that would numb him to the pain that he was suffering. Because there was a purpose for what he was doing. And they crucified him. And parted his garments, casting lots. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them. And upon my vesture they did cast lots. Just as a side note, folks, if Jesus was some homeless vagabond that went around through Jerusalem and Galilee and throughout all Judea, if he was some kind of homeless vagabond, poor man that everybody paints him out to be, many people in the church world paints him out to be, nobody would have been gambling for his clothes. They might have wanted to burn them. But Jesus had a, a coat that was similar to Joseph's coat of many colors. Jesus had a coat that was of one piece. It was a very expensive thing or would have been a very expensive thing in that day. It was a very fine piece of clothing. God doesn't expect you to do without just because you serve him. And sitting down they watched there, watched him there. And they set over his head the accusation written, This is the Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. Do what you said you would do. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now, I want you to realize or recognize, take notice of this phrase, if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Well, he did. Not the way they were expecting or wanting him to. But remember back when Jesus was tempted of the devil after fasting 40 days in the wilderness? You remember what the devil said to him? If you're the Son of God, then turn these stones into bread. If you're the Son of God, then cast yourself down from the temple because the angels will bear you up in their wings. I want you to notice that the devil always tries to challenge you. It's the way he works. He wants somebody to try to prove whatever is going on or whatever is claimed from the Word of God. But folks, the Word of God stands on its own. It doesn't have to be proved. And it certainly is an action of the flesh. 
at the devil's taunting or temptation that brings about supernatural and godly results. Likewise, also the chief priest mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Well, he did come down from the cross and they didn't believe it. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Uh, the other gospel accounts, Luke's account says that one of the thieves recognized him to be a just man. And asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom. And Jesus said to him, I say unto thee this day. Thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now from the sixth hour, that's noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That's three. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now apparently the, the, uh, the darkness that falls for those three hours we know when Jesus died, he died just after 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And remember, the Passover starts at 6 o'clock, or the Sabbath, I'm sorry, not the Passover, but the Sabbath starts at 6 o'clock that afternoon or evening. And the Jews, the Jewish leaders were trying to get these guys finished, killed, and taken down before the Sabbath day starts because, of course, they've got to obey their law. So apparently, and the Bible tells us that Jesus was made sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. There was a transfer that was taking place, a transformation, certainly. But Jesus was made sin, and it seems to be incremental. It seems to be from one thing to the next thing to the next thing, one prophecy fulfilled to the next prophecy that was fulfilled, and so forth. And apparently when he comes to the place at, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon after the three hours of darkness where he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus being made sin and death for us seems to have been completed. Some of them that stood there when they heard it said, this man calls for Elijah. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, let him be. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Here's where his spirit leaves his body. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain. That means torn in two from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent. Apparently an angel went into the Holy of Holies in this curtain that was 20 feet high and 40 feet wide it was over an inch thick grabbed that thing from the top not from the bottom like a man could if he had the strength but from the top ripped that thing in two then the Bible says that there was a great earthquake and it says the earthquake broke rocks now folks I'm not too familiar with earthquakes doing that In our day, they knock buildings down and they demolish structures. But it said the rocks broke. 
this was something out of the ordinary. And apparently the, the soldiers that were charged to Jesus' detail understood that too. So behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Now notice 52 and 53, verses 52 and 53. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. Just a normal Friday. And came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Where's the news media on that one? Can you imagine? It doesn't say people that were just buried. It doesn't say people that had just died. Can you imagine having buried your mom or your dad or somebody in your family? Months ago, maybe years ago, and then all of a sudden they knock on your door and say, hey, I'm back. <laughs> but that seems to be what's taking place here. It's one of the first indications that we have of Jesus' death bringing life. And it certainly isn't the last one. Now, when the centurion and they that were with him, meaning the other soldiers, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, these are the same guys that had something to do with the scourging more, uh, more than likely. These are the same guys that were responsible for mocking him and bringing him pain and suffering. But when they saw these things that were done, they said, truly, this was the Son of God. And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him. Among them was Mary and Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. And then Jesus was buried. When the evening was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea, named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. Now, other accounts, Luke's and John's account particularly, give us information about other things that were going on. It tells us specifically that the women were preparing the spices for his burial. Now, the Jews learned burial practices from the 400 years they spent in Egypt. They would basically mummify the uh, those that were dead they would do it in two stages the first act was where they would apply the spices and the ointment and everything to the body but leave the face uncovered because according to Jewish law and tradition the body could sustain the spirit re-entering after three days that was one of the things that was so significant about it, Jesus waiting four days before he went to Bethany regarding Lazarus. And there's something else that's interesting about this too, folks. The Bible says, again, it's other accounts, but because of the Jews' haste to get everything done and finished before 6 o'clock where the Sabbath day starts, 6 p.m., they wanted to rush this up. 
And they found out that the, uh, that the two thieves, or the two thieves that were crucified on either side of Jesus, were still alive. And so they broke the legs of those two guys so that they couldn't lift themselves back up for any more air. Or if they were able, you could well understand the pain that would be involved, the new dimension of pain involved in that. But when they saw that Jesus was dead, or it looked like he was dead, one of the Roman soldiers took a spear and thrust it into his side. Well, if you were still alive in any means whatsoever, any spark of life to you, you would certainly have reacted to that action. But he didn't. And the Bible says that water and blood poured out from his side, that wound that was inflicted upon him by the Roman spear. Now, I've heard it said that the reason that blood and water came out of his side was because and would have had to have been because Jesus' heart burst. I, I can't verify that medically. But if you look at the things that happen to the human body upon death within seconds and minutes, much less hours, there is such a degradation of things that take place. Rigor mortis sets in. The, the tightening of muscles, and then after 36 hours, those same muscles that were tightened then release. There are so many things, unpleasant things to consider in the death of the human body that weren't a result. Well, how do I say this? normally the body wouldn't be drained of blood. Again, I'm trying not to be gross about some of this stuff. But when Jesus was pierced with, his, with the Roman spear, his body drained of itself of blood. Now, there were several places for the blood to, to leak out of Jesus. Gravity begins to take place and control blood flow. Once the heart stops beating, then blood settles down to the extremities. So when he's pierced in his side... All the blood that would have collected in his chest cavity is released. The nail holes in his feet become the outlet for the, the second location for the blood to, to drain out. Certainly that would have been true as well for his back and even his hands to some degree because of the position of the crucifixion of the crucified party. It would be certainly less from his hands than it would be from his feet and his side. My point is simply this, folks. Jesus and Jesus alone shed blood on the cross. It wasn't a part of the crucifixion process. It would have been a byproduct, especially for somebody that was scourged as Jesus was. But his blood was spilled. Spilled onto the earth. Spilled onto the cross. Now, Lazarus spent more time dead than Jesus did. The two thieves spent more time on the cross than Jesus did. It wasn't about time. It was about what it meant. It was about what the event signified. So when Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate, Pilate marvels that he's dead already. And then he gives Joseph permission 
to have the body of Jesus. Verse 59, And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own tomb, new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. Now the next day that followed, the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate. Now pay particular attention to this, folks. We want to talk about this a little bit. Saying, Sir, we remember that the deceiver said while he was yet alive, After three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Now I want you to notice this. Remember why Pilate's involved in this in any way from the beginning. And that is, he's trying to keep the city from uh, exploding in riots. The Jews, the chief priests and those that followed them, are very intent for Jesus' body to stay in the grave. He's got to stay there at least through the fourth day, or the beginning of the fourth day, I should say. Because he claimed to, to rise again the third day. So you've got the Romans and you've got the Jews, Jewish leaders, high priests and so forth, the Sanhedrin. You've got them totally intent on keeping Jesus' body in the grave for at least three days. And their concern, the Jews' concern, is that the disciples will come and see this body away and say that he's been risen. Now let me ask you a question. Who would that benefit? To what degree would there be a benefit to the followers of Jesus to steal his body and say that he was resurrected if he really wasn't? Some people have responded to things like that by saying, well, they want to keep the movement alive. What movement? It's not a political movement. Jesus shot away from that time after time when people questioned him. Are you going to restore the nation of Israel from Roman rule now? He never answered that. He never intended that. So who would it benefit or how would it benefit? It's not a military action that he's fostering. So how would the disciples of Jesus benefit in any way whatsoever by stealing his body? Even if they did claim that he was raised from the dead, what is that going to do for them? They found that they don't have the power of God to do the healing miracles and the healing wonders and so forth that they did while Jesus was here. You remember in John chapter 9, the disciples come to Jesus in a certain place and said, uh, there's a, there was a guy that was born blind and they said, who sinned? Their question to Jesus is, who sinned this man was born blind? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? Well, they were right on one thing, and that is they understood that sickness was caused by sin. But they can't figure out whether it's the parents' sin or the individual's sin that caused this to take place. And Jesus says neither one. Well, if sickness is caused by sin, and we certainly know that no sickness ever showed up on the earth before the fall, when it was up until the fall, when the earth was exactly the way that God intended for it to be, there was no sickness, nothing to harm anybody. 
So God cannot be the author of sickness and disease just based on that alone. When God looked at the earth and saw that it was very good, there was no sin and there was no sickness, there was nothing that could harm mankind. But when sin comes on the scene, sickness shows up. And sickness is always the offspring, the evil offspring of sin. But in this case, the disciples are looking for the personal sin. Whose individual sin caused this man to be born blind? Jesus said it was neither the man's nor his, his parents. And then he shifts gears and he says, but that the, the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it's day. Then he said, the night comes when no man can work. Well, this is that night that he spoke of in John chapter 9. The time that he's being offered on the cross. The period of time between his death and his resurrection. The disciples aren't healing the sick. They're not casting out devils. They're not doing any of the miraculous things that they participated in while Jesus was alive. So what movement is there to protect? Lying about taking Jesus' body, deceiving people by stealing his body certainly wouldn't cause the power of God to be in manifestation. Beyond that, you're going to see that the Roman soldiers make it impossible for anybody to steal his body. Let me back up a little bit. Verse 63, the Pharisees said, Sir, we remember that the deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days will I rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, You have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone, setting a watch. Now, when he says, You've got the ability to do these things, he gives them soldiers or at least he uh, allows them to use the soldiers that were already present now where it says set a watch these are, this is 16 soldiers four of them would be commissioned to stand during the entirety of their watch the other 12 would be seated around them in a semicircle so there's only three possibilities for anybody stealing the body one is the Romans themselves we see that that would be contrary to their purpose since they allowed Jesus to be killed to avoid a riot, they certainly wouldn't participate in some kind of deception that would incite a riot. The second group are the Jews, the high priests and the Jews. They certainly didn't want the body of Jesus taken. That's why they petitioned Pilate for a watch and a seal over the, the stone. Now this seal was a, an official act. It was much more important and much, much more strict than the yellow police tape saying don't cross this line, stay out or whatever. Anybody that broke the seal, whether it was a wax seal with the insignia of Rome or whether it was a rope seal or some other method or manner that it was uh, set would have been under penalty of death. There's nobody that would have challenged that. The Roman soldiers were the only ones that had any possibility of that because the Jewish leaders wouldn't have been able to uh, overthrow 
or get through the, the Roman soldiers without killing them. Same thing with Jesus' disciples. How would they get through this watch of 16 Roman soldiers? So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. That brings us to chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. Now they're coming to finish the embalming process or the, the uh, mummification process of Jesus. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake, the keepers of these, 12, these 16 soldiers. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. Apparently, the angel wasn't too concerned about the seal. And the angel answered and said unto the woman, Fear ye not, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here. For he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There you shall see him, lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there they shall see me. Now verse 11, Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch, here's these soldiers again, some of the watch came unto the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they let, gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and, seduce, and secure you. They're offering him an out. Because if they were literally found to be sleeping so that somebody could steal the body away, that would have been certain death for them. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now, folks, the, the Gospel of Matthew was written in 54 or 55 A.D. That's 21 or 22 years after Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead. But even in Matthew's day, some two decades into the birth of the church, the Jews are still claiming that the disciples stole him away. To what end? What's that going to do for the disciples? It's not going to give them miracle power. It's not going to restore healing power to their ministry. And folks, there's something else to consider about this. As far-fetched as the situation seems to be for us, it was a very real issue in their day. Now, you know as well as I do, that during the early days of the church, there was great persecution. Actually, the book of Acts tells us about seven different waves of persecution against the church. Some of them were by the Romans, some of them were by the Jews, the high priests and such. 
Do you realize how many people would have had to be in on this to overcome the Roman soldiers, to steal the body of Jesus? And think of all the people in the, the first 30 years of the church that were killed, that were persecuted and put to death. You're going to try to tell me, or some would try to tell us, that not one of those people would crack somewhere along the way to save their own lives and say, yeah, 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 it's been a, it's been a hoax all along. Jesus really didn't rise from the dead. I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is something that Paul dealt with. And again, it's the early days of the church. Paul was put to death in about 64 A.D. So he had to write these letters sometime before that, some years before that perhaps. Let me start reading to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Paul said, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? You remember that was the issue between the Pharisees and the Sadducees when Jesus was here on the earth. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. It tells us in the book of Acts that in one particular place, Paul perceived that there was the same mix between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and so he started talking about the resurrection. And then that got the Pharisees arguing with the Sadducees, and they kind of forgot about him. So it was not an unusual thing. The Sadducees were primarily those in the Jewish religious community that had accepted the teachings of, and the, the culture of the Greeks when Alexander the Great was ruling over the earth there were a number of those of the priesthood that became assimilated into the Greek culture and that passed down generations even hundreds of years so it's something that Paul's still having to deal with in his day the first generation of the church. He said, so if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Well, that stands to reason. If there's no such thing as a resurrection, then Jesus can't be resurrected. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he raised not up. In other words, we would be liars and false witnesses, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. There's no heaven. If in this life, notice verse 19, he said, if in this life only, we have hope in Christ. We are of all men most miserable. Now I want you to notice what Paul is saying. He doesn't try to excuse this. And there, there's always been in the church, always will be in the church I guess, this intellectualism or intellectual position that many people will take. And it's been promoted through the years, through the ages, several centuries actually, by some that there is the resurrection was something more than just 
or something different than a, a literal act. The idea is that Christ rose in the hearts of his believers. Or he rose metaphorically speaking. But folks, Paul goes all in on this. Paul says the resurrection is everything. He doesn't shy away from it. He says the resurrection is everything. If Jesus is not resurrected from the dead, if God didn't raise him from the dead, then we are of all men most miserable. He says, he's literally saying these words that are translated miserable, it literally means pathetic. He's saying how pathetic we would be to hold on to an idea of Jesus being raised from the dead if there is no resurrection. If there's no resurrection, we lose everything. We lose more than everything because we have signed on and joined ourselves to the biggest lie that there was. Well, how can we know? How can we, be, how can we determine what's true? As I said earlier, historical documents show that Jesus lived in the days of Pontius Pilate. It tells us of the controversies including Jesus in the days of Pontius Pilate. It tells us that historical documents identify that Jesus was put to death by Pontius Pilate and placed in a tomb. But that's where history stops us. The only doubt is how did he leave the tomb? Now, folks, when we shift our attention to the disciples now for, uh, to finish this up, no matter what Jesus had said, and Jesus taught them plainly. The Bible says in several places that Jesus taught them plainly that he was going to Jerusalem, he'd be taken captive by the Jews, he'd be killed, and then he would be raised again the third day. They didn't believe that. When Jesus is raised from the dead and appears to them, he upbraids them for their hardness of heart and unbelief. Why did you not believe? I told you plainly that I'd be raised from the dead. But the disciples are acting in such a way that it's the farthest thing in the world from their mind. The disciples are acting in such a way, John chapter 20 tells us that the disciples were gathered together behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. But then all of a sudden, something changes these men, these ragtag vagabond disciples, from being huddled together behind closed doors for fear to standing in the face of the, the local authorities, the Romans themselves, and refusing to bow down, to become men that promote the gospel of Jesus in such a way that the same history that tells us about the Roman Empire basically identifies the fall of the Roman Empire to, is to Christianity. It brought down an empire. Not because that's what it was designed to do, but because more and more people accepted the reality that Jesus was alive. The Bible says, Luke's account says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time after his resurrection. How does anybody explain that away? Jesus appears to his disciples. 
He breathes on them in John chapter 20 and says, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And immediately they're changed. Luke chapter 24 verse 52 says that the disciples, after meeting with Jesus, instead of being huddled up behind closed doors anymore, they're openly in the temple worshiping and praising God. They've been instructed and commanded by the Lord to tarry in Jerusalem until they receive the Holy Ghost. Until they be endued with power from on high. And this power of the Holy Ghost makes them healing and miracle workers just like Jesus was when he was here on the earth. Now can you imagine after, for example, in Acts chapter 3 where it tells us the man at the beautiful gate, the crippled man at the beautiful gate was healed. The Jews call him into question, interrogate them. And they identify that it's the power in the name of Jesus whom they crucified. That's what's done the healing and the miracle works. Just when the Jews thought that they got rid of the one that was causing them trouble, now they're multiplied, doing the same works, the same miracles, creating the same problems for them from that point forward. And the disciples, Peter and John, look at these guys. They start off being afraid. Peter's afraid before Jesus is crucified that he's going to have to be taken by the same ones and crucified right alongside of Jesus. So he denies it. He curses him. And now just a matter of 53 days later, he begins doing the same works that Jesus did. Where's the fear of the authorities anymore? It's gone. What would turn a man like Paul? He was on the fast track with the Jewish leaders. He was the golden boy. He had the same training that the high priest himself did. He became the strong arm of the, of the Jews in Jerusalem, persecuting the church. But then he's on his way to Damascus and meets the resurrected Jesus. Jesus identifies him himself as the one that Saul is persecuting. And instantly this man's life changed. What would create that kind of change? Now folks, you know the end of the story. You know how Paul was persecuted. Of all the places that Paul went, there's only one place that we have record of definitively that he was not run out of town. What would change a man from being the persecutor of the church to being one of its greatest spokesmen? Something had to happen, folks. Something had to happen. Well, what happened was simply this. He met Jesus. He became aware that the Jesus that these Christians preached and spoke about that caused him to persecute the church. That Jesus was real. And that Jesus was alive. Folks, the church doesn't need more methods and programs to reach the world. We just need to show them the resurrected Jesus. Peter and the disciples did that. And it talks about healing miracles that took place that were beyond even some of the things that Jesus did himself.
The Bible tells us that people were healed by Peter's shadow falling on them. We don't even have record of that in Jesus' ministry. Because they met the resurrected Jesus. Folks, Jesus is either alive or he's not. He either came out of the tomb the way the Bible says in power and picked up his body. The death process of his body had to be reversed instantly and immediately. And it was. I love what the angel said when Mary came to the sepulcher. He is not here. He's not here on the, he's not still in the grave, folks. He departed from that grave with great power. And that's what he told his disciples. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore into the earth. In other words, he says, I'll take care of things in heaven. You take care of things on the earth. And whatever you call for or require in my name, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Folks, these communion elements, the bread and the grape juice that we use, represent the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It represents the body and the blood which was shed and offered for us. But even as Jesus said, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do show the Lord's death till he comes. We magnify that he died, but we rejoice that he didn't stay dead. So, gentlemen, if you guys will come forward, we will wait upon the people. Father's heart displayed for us 
Bible says that when Jesus was, was with his disciples at the Last Supper, he took the bread and he said, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. He's talking about the scourging that he received of Pilate that we talked about earlier. He told us to take and eat all of it. In other words, don't leave one blessing of God untaken. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the body of Jesus, which is broken for us. We thank you for the stripes, the bruise that he took upon himself. 
and that by that bruise we are healed. We thank you for your great plan of redemption. Now say this after me. As I receive this bread, Jesus, I take you as my healer. Amen. Let's receive the bread. The Bible says in the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying this cup is the new covenant or testament in my blood. We know that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. We know that he was made our substitute so that he took upon us our unrighteousness and exchanged it for his righteousness. Now, folks, there may be people here among us that don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Well, you can make him your Lord and Savior this morning through this communion element. This blood that's represented by the cup that we hold was blood that was shed for you to enter into righteousness, to enter into the family of God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the precious blood of Jesus that was shed for us. We thank you that we are washed clean in the blood. We are made righteous by the blood of Jesus that was shed. Say this after me. I believe that Jesus came to the earth, that he died on the cross and shed his blood for me. Jesus, I confess you as my Lord and Savior and my soon coming King. Let's receive the cup. Amen. Now I have something I'm going to ask you to do for me. Those of you that are here this morning that made that confession about Jesus being the Lord and Savior and even your healer. If that was the first time that you've ever done that, tell somebody. It's not a hard thing to come into the family of God. You don't have to join the church, any church, for that to happen. You just have to open your heart to the Lord, and you did that this morning. You just have to confess Jesus as your Savior, and you did that through the communion. So if that was the first time for any of you, tell somebody. You'll see that things will change. You'll be changed. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together. We appreciate you so much you sharing your Easter morning with us. Please remember there's no healing school again tonight. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. And you're dismissed.